we finish up the third of four uh, minor prophets that we have been looking at this fall, um, looking at uh, what uh, the Lord says to us in those books as we think about repentance for revival. I can I can remember. <laughs> I can remember uh, uh, being in uh, Madagascar, and one of the MKs there were was making cookies, and she uh, baked them, and we started eating them, and they just weren't as sweet as normal. Like you just you know, like you bite in a cookie, and there's a certain level of sweetness that runs through your head, and you're like, it's just not quite there. Of course, no one says anything. And finally, this, this teenager looks and she goes, these aren't right, but I know that I added plenty of sugar. I know that I added plenty of sugar. These should be sweet beyond all reason. And I can remember her mom looking at her and going, but did you add the salt? And she goes, why would you add salt to a cookie? You want it to be sweet. And she goes, if you want a cookie to be sweet, you've got to add salt. It heightens the flavor in the tongue, and it makes us experience the sweetness better. These minor prophets are hard. Talking about sin, talking about the consequences of sin, they are hard. Especially when we think of the season of Christmas. But they are the salt to our salvation. When we talk about these hard things and we realize what we've been saved from, Christmas means more. Easter means more. And when we understand the depths of these things, then when we come to Christmas, we can exalt better because we understand it better. Our senses are heightened so that when we look at the depths of Nahum and Habakkuk, when we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, our, our senses have been heightened and it makes it all that much more sweeter for what he's done. So I know, trust me, as your pastor studying Nahum, I know these are difficult passages and these are hard words to hear. But may they cause us to come into this Christmas season and it may it make it even sweeter. May it make our rejoicing even clearer and even better as we do that together. If you would, please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word this morning. Nahum chapter 3, starting in verse 1, reading to the end of this book. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. Crack the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, host of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and people with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and the kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. 
And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh, who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than thieves that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity, and her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken, and you will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they will fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increase your merchants more than the stars of the heaven. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fence in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they will fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Let's pray. Father, we come this morning and... Lord, this is a hard chapter. Lord, it's hard because in part we don't understand all of it. Because the images don't always click with us. But it's hard as well because... It's difficult to contemplate. It's difficult to think upon. It's terrifying. And it confronts us not only with the evil of this world, with our own sin, but it confronts us with your judgment. And that makes us uneasy. It makes me uneasy. Father, I pray, though, as we read these words, we would be reminded of your grace and your mercy and that we would be reminded of the birth of your son this Christmas and our responsibility to go tell it on the mountain. Father, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. For those of you that may have not been with us the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at Nahum, which in many ways is the sequel to Jonah. Nahum has been speaking of what is going to happen to the Assyrians and their capital, Nineveh. The Assyrians were an incredibly violent people, incredibly evil people. They had, strict, they had been uh, causing their neighbors to fear for century plus time. They were ruthless. They were cruel. And God has looked upon them and said, enough. It's not because he hasn't tried to show them mercy and grace and love. But he has sent them Jonah 
to, to preach a word of repentance. And for a while they did. For a while they did ask for forgiveness and they did change their ways, but they went right back to it. And now a hundred years plus after Jonah, God says, okay, if this is what you've chosen, then this is the consequence. Kind of like the parent on a much more severe level, kind of like the parent who looks at the child and says, okay, I've given you time after time after time. If this is what you choose, then there, here's the consequence. God says enough is enough. Chapter 2 and chapter 3, we see the results of their sin and their evil. And it's hard to look at. It's hard to look at. We know that God is a God of love and mercy and grace, and we rightfully dwell upon those things. It's good for us to think of those things. It's good for us to proclaim those things. It's good for us to, to sing of them and, and to desire them and to fall into them. But it's good for us from time to time to also be reminded of God's wrath, that we serve a holy and just God, and that his wrath comes upon evil, and it becomes upon those who commit it. We see that God's wrath is unquestionable. It's unquestionable in the sense that it is rightfully earned. You look at the end of chapter 3 and it says, There is no easing to your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? The judgment of God upon Assyria was rightfully earned. But lest we think it is theirs alone, we're reminded of verses like Romans 3.23, where it says, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not just the Assyrians who have done wrong, all of us have done wrong. As we look at throughout Scripture, what we see are different lists of, of wrongdoings. We see it in the beginning of Romans, we see it throughout throughout Scripture. And it's meant to not be a list of exclusion, like if I haven't done one of the eight things on this list, then I'm okay. But it's there rather to remind us that we have all failed, that we've all broken the law. We're not all murderers. We're not all addicts. We're not all thieves or adulterers. But we have all disobeyed parents. We have all lied We've all carried unforgiveness and bitterness at times. We've all been idolaters. In other words, we have all placed something before God at some point in our lives. And the scripture tells us that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. The picture there that is given in the original language is kind of this idea of someone striving for something to make it their own but falling just short. In my mind, especially this time of year, it reminds me of a three-year-old standing below the counter knowing that there are cookies just on top of it and striving for the cookie to make it her own and her not being able to get it. In the same way, that's the picture that Romans 23 is drawing. It's showing us a picture of all of us reaching for the glory of God, unable to grasp it so that we can make it our own. But all of us want to be God. All of us want to be the one in control. All of us want to call our own shots. And so we strive for it. We desire to make it our own, and we fall, but we fall short. Life reminds us consistently that we are not in control. 
And even if we were, we would fail miserably at it. Not a single one of us can deny this. We can, but it wouldn't be true. And so if we understand that, then it makes Romans 6.23 even more poignant. It says, for the wages of sin are death. Now, the ending of that is fantastic. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, salt and sugar. The wages of sin, though, is death. If all of us have missed the mark, if all of us have fallen short of the glory of God after having tried to steal it for ourselves, then all of us are deserving of death. And it's not just simply physical death. It's a spiritual death. Last week we talked about that Scripture teaches that all of us live for eternity. Now, when we talk about that as Christians, we tend to focus on heaven, right? We say we live eternally, and that's a glorious thing. It's a good thing. But for those that reject the gospel, for those that reject Jesus Christ, living forever is eternal death. And that's something quite different. James 1.4 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That desire, think of it as that wanting to be God, that desire for glory. He's enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to what? Sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. God's wrath is unquestionable in that it is rightfully earned. And not one of us can deny it. Which leads me to the second point. It is undeniable. It's undeniable in the sense that it's been warned of. There is no one that will stand before the judgment seat of God when the books are opened at the end and declare, I did not know. I didn't know. Genesis chapter 2 verse 16, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. From the very beginning, God warns that sin leads to death. Nahum chapter 1 verse 2, what we just wrote, read just a two, couple of weeks ago, declares what all of the Old Testament declares. It says, the Lord is jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Revelation 19.15 speaks of the coming king of Jesus and his return. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, sorry, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteous, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. His wrath is unquestionable. It's undeniable. And it is unbiased. It's unbiased in that it is just and fair. Romans 2.5, because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. When God opens 
the books on the day of judgment and looks at each individual, he will have recorded correctly all of our deeds and all of our thoughts. And there will not be one that is guilty who goes without punishment. And there will not be one, one punished who is innocent. He is just. J.I. Packer summarizes it this way, and it's a good reminder for us. Listen carefully, because I had to read this twice before I really began to comprehend it. But he summarizes it this way and reminds us that God's wrath is different than ours. He says, God's wrath in the Bible is never capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. Let me read that again. God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. In other words, you cannot compare your anger and your wrath to his because we get it wrong. Our anger usually comes out of selfishness. It comes out of bitterness. It comes out of, of something else. His anger comes out of something against something that is morally, objectively morally evil. He is righteous to be angry about that. Let me put it in a, in a different light. When we see things like Pearl Harbor, 9-11, the attacks on Hamas... It is objectively evil, and it is right to respond. Though humans often respond maybe in a way that is not appropriate. Sometimes we go overboard, right? We're not perfect in our wrath. But it is good and it is right that it is, that, that evil is responded to. God then, being perfect and righteous and holy, is right and good to respond to evil, just as he responds to the evil of Assyria. So his wrath is unquestionable, it's undeniable, it's unbiased, it is also unimaginable. It's unimaginable. Look back at some of the things that we have seen. Chapter 2, the chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. Verse 8, Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Verse 10, hearts meld and knees tremble. Anguish is in the loins. All faces grow pale. Horsemen charging, flashing sword, glittering spear, host of slain, heaps of corpses. You will be in exile, into captivity. You will seek refuge from the enemy. On and on. Jesus says that hell is a place where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not turn. Second Thessalonians 1, 7, when G the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not 
know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. His wrath is unimaginable. Separation from him is unimaginable. The suffering is unimaginable. The famous theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer was involved in a conspiracy to get rid of Hitler. The conspiracy was found out. He was arrested and placed in one of the concentration camps. And it changed him forever. He, died, he would end up dying in that concentration camp, but we, received, we re, were able to find some of his writings. And one of the things that became clear is his understanding of hell deepened. In fact, it changed his theology because he couldn't imagine a place worse than hell, worse than the concentration camp. It's unimaginable. It's just, but it's unimaginable. It's earned, but it's unimaginable. Why do we speak of these things? I asked that question last week if you were here. Why do we speak of hell? Why do we speak of the unimaginable? And I give you two answers. There are more, but there are two that I want to highlight. One we spoke about last week. We said that we speak of of the unimaginable. We speak of hell because it reminds us of what Jesus Christ did for us. It reminds us of what took place on the cross. That he took our punishment upon himself so that we could now have grace. That we could experience mercy. That we could be adopted into the family of God. Innocent because of his pardon we glorify him before, because of it. We're excited because of it. We're thankful because of that truth that we're reminded of. If we don't understand what we have been saved from, then we will never understand the price that was paid and the glory that we enter into. But I gave you a second reason last week that we didn't explore as much, and that was it is a warning to the lost. We speak of hell because it is a warning to the lost. And we're reminded of our need to be broken for those that are heading down this path. That brokenness we see throughout Scripture. We see it throughout Scripture. We see it in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 33. God says, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? He says in chapter 33 of Ezekiel, he makes it a statement. He says, I have no desire in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their ways and live. Over and over, God sends prophets and teachers and others to say, stop going this way. We see brokenness for the lost in Jesus. Luke 19 a guy named Zacchaeus comes to find Jesus. In fact, he ends up having to climb up in a tree to get a better view. Zacchaeus had been an evil man. 
He was a cheat. He was a liar. He had built his wealth on the backs of others. Many in his own community saw him as a traitor. And so they were upset when Jesus looks upon Zacchaeus and says, let's go to your house and eat. And he sits with him and he has a meal and he explains the gospel to him. And Zacchaeus repents. He stops going that direction. And he says, I want to follow you now. And there are those that are upset about it. And Jesus looks at them and is like, what did you think was going to happen? He says in verse 10, at the end of that passage, he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is the desire of Christ, to see someone like Zacchaeus, that everyone else despised because he had abused his position, because he had cheated and lied, because he had made their, his wealth off of their backs, to look at a person like Zacchaeus and say, you can be forgiven. You can be saved. Jesus later in chapter 19 is on a mountain and he's looking over all of Jerusalem and he says, oh, how I would have gathered you time and again. I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks to comfort and to protect, he's saying. But you would not. We see Jesus grieve over these people and the direction that they have chosen. We see it in Paul. We see it in Paul. Romans chapter 9. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for, from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Think about what Paul's saying there for a minute. In light of all that we've talked about these last several weeks about the wrath of God and the, the terribleness of hell, that Paul says, when I look at the lost, I wish I could take their punishment for them. When I look at my family and my friends and co-workers and associates, when I look at my community, Paul says, my heart is broken to the point that I would be willing to take all of that on me if it meant that they would be saved. He's expressing the heart of his Savior. Brothers and sisters, we, we talk about these things that we may understand what we have been saved from, but we also talk about these things that we may understand what others are facing and that we may be broken for them. That we may be broken for them, that we may have the heart of our Savior. Pray that that is true of us. If so, Jesus has a wonderful word for us. Workers needed. You cannot drive through anywhere hardly anymore and not see that sign, right? Whether it's a restaurant or whether it's a factory whether it's some other sort of shop, it is almost impossible not to see that sign, workers needed, apply inside. It, Jesus says the same thing. Workers needed. 
Matthew chapter 9, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching them in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is the prayer of Christ. It's always struck me for as long as I can remember, that Jesus there does not say, pray for the lost. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't. We absolutely should. But that's not what he says right here to the disciples. What he says to the disciples is, is, pray for laborers. Pray for workers. Because the hurting are out there. The lost are out there. I was just reading an article this week that in 2023, the suicide, the amount of suicides reached an all-time high. And never before have we seen anything like it, especially between ages 15 and 25. They are helpless and they are harassed. They are like sheep without a shepherd and they need hope. They need joy. They need purpose. They need contentment. They need fulfillment. They need Christmas. Pray for laborers to go. The harvest is ripe. But know this. When you pray that prayer, Lord, send laborers. Most likely you're praying for yourself. Because it's the mission of the church. When we say, Lord, send labor, send someone to go and to share Christmas with them, to share the gospel with them, to share hope with them, understand that most likely you are praying for yourself because God usually looks at you and says, what do you think I've put you here for? Why do you think I've given you that set of friends? Why do you think I've given you that set of coworkers? Why do you think I gave you that job in that position? Why do you think you interact with these people on a regular basis? Why do you think I put you in that church at this time? Why do you think all of this has happened? Because you're the laborer. John 4 shares a similar statement to Matthew 9. It says, John 4 the people are coming out of the town at the bequest of the Samaritan woman. She has had this incredible experience with Jesus. And she's like, you got to come see this guy. And as they are coming, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Brothers and sisters, others have gone before us. We're not the first to take on this task. Nor will we be the last if the Lord, unless the Lord comes. Some of us will be sowers. Some of us will be weed pullers. Some of us 
will be reapers, and we will get to see the Lord do incredible things. You don't get to choose your job. You do get to choose your obedience. May there be labors to go, to sing the glorious gospel that we can be saved. Understand as well that this is the responsibility of those who know. As we've preached these last few weeks about the consequences of sin and about the wrath of God and about the gospel, that there is good news. You did not know it, but you were taking on responsibility. In knowing the truth, you have taken on responsibility. Ezekiel 33 says this. says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land, take a man from among them and make him their watchman. And if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning... And the sword comes and takes him away, that his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken the warning, he would, not have, he would have saved his own life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them away, the person that is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. One pastor puts it this way. Now today, today, you and I are not first covenant prophets, nor are we new covenant apostles Many of us are not even pastors and teachers who will be judged with straighter, greater strictness. But does that mean that the rest of us will not be judged by any strictness? Do not our pastors and teachers train us for the work of the ministry? In other words, to share the gospel? Should I appease my own conscience by merely inviting others to church, hoping that someday they might cave in and come and hear the gospel. My pastor did not grow up with my people. Live next door, text them frequently, watch football games with them, and sit in, with them in their homes. But I did. And as much as some of us may throw stones at seeker-driven churches, the question comes uncomfortably full circle. Do I shrink back from hard truth in order to win others? Is my delicacy cruel? Is my flattery poison? 
Am I accomplice in the murder of souls? We have a responsibility, friends. We cannot remain silent. We cannot say nothing when we know the truth and we know the solution. When we know the gospel, when we know why this baby was born and we know the graciousness of our God, we can't say nothing. This uh, semester, I had the privilege once again of teaching fifth and sixth grade kids, young adults. I know to some of you, teaching fifth and sixth graders sounds pretty rough, but I love it. They're crazy, they're immature, they're a little weird, but they my people. Maybe that says more about me than it does them, but I love them. And as we taught them this semester, we taught them about the gospel. We taught them about the good news of what Christ has done and and what he has accomplished. We also told them about the consequence of rejecting him. We taught them about hell. Not to this harshness. We, We made it appropriate, but we taught them that there was another side to it. And I can remember talking and saying, your friends don't know this. And I remember one of our fifth graders looked up and said, that's going to change. And lo and behold, if they didn't do it, now they were frustrated at times because not everyone comes to Christ immediately when you share. But they obeyed. They said, not on my watch. Not on my watch. Oh, fellow adults, (laughs) will we hear this message and we will say, not on my watch. That's going to change. We all have friends. We all have family. We all have acquaintances that need to hear the Christmas story. They need to hear the gospel. They need to know that they're going a direction that they can't even imagine what's at the end of it. What will be our response? This morning, we're going to have a time of response. Time just to to pray back to God what he has told us. Maybe this morning you're here and you have never heard about the consequences of your sin. You've never put those two things together. Or maybe you've been in church your whole life, but you have, you have continued to try to be your own God. You've, you've come to church. You've been a good person, but you've tried to earn salvation on your own. You still want to control your life. And this morning you realize, I can't do that. I need him. I need his forgiveness. I need his grace. I need his mercy. Then this morning, will you do that? Will you be like Zacchaeus? Will you be like others who, who have laid down their life. They've said, God, forgive me for what I've done. Help me to follow you. I want want better. This morning, is there someone that God's putting on your mind, Christian, on your mind, believer, who he has put in your path over and over again? Will you share with them?
Will you risk uncomfortability for them? Will you do what the video we saw just a moment ago with our missionary friends who say, I pray that we will go and do the hard things, the hard places. We won't shy away from those things for the sake of the gospel. Praise team, will you come back up? Like I said, we're just going to have a time of response this morning. As they come, let me, let me pray. Father, I pray this morning, Lord, that as we hear hard things, hard things, Lord, as we hear of our responsibility to sound the warning and to proclaim the good news of what you've done, Lord, that we would not keep the greatest present in all the world to ourselves, but Lord, that we would desire to share it. Father, I pray for the one here who does not have a relationship with you. Lord, that you are, are moving in them. Lord, there is something going on that they can't explain right in this moment that they won't ignore that, but that they will reach out to you. Lord, that they'll ask you to change their lives. Lord, I pray that you would give them boldness to do that. Lord, help give them courage. Father, I pray for us. Lord, as we realize our responsibility to be the laborers in the harvest, Father, that you would give us courage to go and to share, that you would give us courage to have those relationships during the week that we use to, to share good news, good news. Father, I pray, Lord, do things that only you can do. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.